So hopefully you guys are all in John chapter 15. Uh, if not, I'll give you a second or so to get there. What we'll do first, we'll just read all the way through, verses 1 through 5. So join me in that. John 15, verse 1. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I think a question that naturally comes up is, why the vine? Why does Jesus use that analogy here? And, um, you know, is that something that his disciples understand? Um, this is something that, that they understood much more than we could have. Um, remember, during this time, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament. And not necessarily everybody had written scriptures. A lot of times it was, uh, you know, it was recited during, uh, during their services in a synagogue. And a lot of times it was actually committed to memorization. And especially verses that would allude to the Messiah or anything that was, uh, th- was going to foreshadow Jesus, a lot of those things the Jewish people were really expectant and hopeful for. Um, so this would have been something that, that they knew well. Um, in their Old Testament, there's several references, and uh, we're going to go through a few of those um, in, in Psalm 80 and also in Isaiah 5. We'll get to that in just a little bit. And it's interesting to note that after the, uh, after the disciples had, had left the upper room, Uh, in John 14, verse 31. It says, Arise, let us go from here. And we don't really know where exactly this takes place, but the next place that we see them arriving in chapter 18 is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the upper room is kind of on the southwestern side of of the city of Jerusalem at that time, the Garden of Gethsemane to the east across the Kidron Valley, so they would have had a little bit of a journey to go through. Um, But they were on their way, and perhaps they were passing through an actual vineyard as they went down through that valley. And Jesus could have maybe even stopped and, and you know, maybe even held a, a vine and, and used that as an example. Another thing that it, that it, uh, that it might be is that uh, as he was crossing through, the temple gates would have been open uh, at all times of the night. It was a custom during Passover, of course, the season that they're in. So on, on the temple, there was these large golden uh, grapevines that were over the, the gate to the entrance of the temple. And so you might imagine that even that, that Jesus was stopping by and he was, he was looking at that. You know, he pointed and he used this analogy of, of the vine. Um, we have references of that. Um, there's some, some Jewish history, uh, Josephus, and also in the, the Mishnah, which is kind of a, a recording of Jewish oral tradition of that day. Uh, it talks about the vine uh, that had clusters of grapes the height of a man and that this vine was just a, a marvel in size and, and artistry to all who saw it. So this is something that, that the Jewish people would have, have really, um, really have understood. But in Psalm 80, verses 8 to 11, in kind of a, a neat little picture here, it says, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it, in reference to the nation of Israel. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its boughs. 
It was sending out branches to the sea and its roots to the river. This verse and many, many others in the Old Testament reference um, the vine as a symbol for Israel. And as we know so often, this is a, a disobedient group of people, uh, people that turn their backs on their God, that didn't follow his commandments, didn't follow his ways. And there's a lot of references as well, I wish we had time to get into them, but we simply don't tonight, um, that Jesus, or excuse me, that the Bible talks about uh, the, the punishment and how that vine will be treated and how it will be gathered up and it will be cast out. And we do have a little bit of reference to that here in, in John 15. But there is a section here in Isaiah chapter 5 that I'd love you guys to turn to, if you would, please. It's Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7. And this is another description of, of the vine uh, being a, a reference to ancient Israel. You guys are all there. Verse 1 says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug all around it and removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. I love that he uses that word, the choicest vine. This wasn't an ordinary vine. This was the choicest vine. As we know, God chose Israel to be his chosen people, um, that he would carry out his plan, that it would be fulfilled through that line. We actually have another parallel in Jeremiah 2.21. I won't have you turn there, but in reference to the, to the choice vine, it says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the, into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? So picking up in, uh, in verse 5, or excuse me, in chapter 5, verse 2. And he planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expect it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground and I will lay it to waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. As I, as I imagine in John 15, as he's, he's speaking to the disciples, as they're, they're on this journey on, his way, on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, I can just imagine him again either, either taking that vine or maybe even stopping in front of the, the temple, looking up to that, that gate. And I was reading a, a commentary here um, from Dr. McGee, and I want to share that with you guys. It says, when Jesus depicted himself as the true vine, he could have been contrasting himself with this artificial vine, referencing the one on the temple, suggesting that if the disciples would offer themselves to him to the degree that people offered their substance to this golden symbol, the result would be abundant spiritual fruit. And I think right here in the very beginning, Jesus is starting to get to the fact that 
the life is in him, the salvation is in him. It's not from a nation, it's not from a lineage, it's not by abiding in the law, it's not by being circumcised, it's none of those things. It is all through Jesus. We're starting to see kind of the, the beginning of the ultimate plan that is to be fulfilled here. Now, after he talks about the, the vine here, an interesting point is that he mentions that he is the true vine. What does that mean? Why does he say the true vine? The word for true here in the Greek is alethinos, and that word is actually found in John 6. Uh, so that's another reference back to one of the I am statements where Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And he's speaking of, of the manna that was given to the Israelites. He was talking about the bread that comes down from, from heaven, but he calls himself the, the true bread. In verse 31 of John 6, it says, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And another reference that's given to that, uh, to that word true, that alethinos, is in John 1, 9. That's in reference to John the Baptist. And he talks about um, a, a light that, that will be coming, that he's reflecting that light. But the true light, that word alethinos, the true light is Jesus. So the point here is that Jesus is really the ultimate fulfillment of that plan. Everything else was a shadow of what was to come, just like the manna was a shadow, right? The, the bread that was given, um, that gave life to the Israelites, that was a picture of Jesus and the fact that he was going to give life to the followers, to his believers. Same thing with, with John. John baptized with water, but Jesus ultimately baptized with the Spirit. So all these things are just a foreshadowing of what was going to come. So Jesus is saying, I am the true vine as if he's saying that he's, he's really, again, come to fulfill that promise to the people. Now, the second part of verse 1 says, I am the true vine. It says, and my father is the vine dresser. What's a vine dresser? What, is that, what does that person do? The Greek word for that is georgos. Um, it would be a worker of the land or a farmer or a caretaker, someone that was in charge of growing the vine, caring for the vine. Now, it's important to note that the vine can't care for itself, uh, interestingly enough, um, and Jesus references himself as the true vine. Um, but ultimately, a vine needs a caretaker. It really can't grow well on its own. Now, the vine dresser's sole job um, can be summed up in ensuring that the purpose of the vine is fulfilled. What is the purpose of a vine? Well, it's to bear fruit. Uh, there's actually only, only one purpose for that. We'll get into that in just a minute. Um, going back to the, to the illusion of, of God the Father being the vine dresser and Jesus being the vine, uh, Isaiah 53, 2 actually gives a little bit of a prophecy towards that. It says, for he, speaking of Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. 
I just think it's so interesting that, that God took the time to raise up this vine. This just didn't happen overnight. Believers, us as branches, we can be grafted into that vine at any given time. But in order for us to be fruitful, that vine has to be well-established. That can't be some young tender shoot. And we can see that even in, in Jesus' life when he, was, when he was here on earth, when he was tempted, when he faced all sorts of struggles that we all do as human beings. Uh, but the Father was, was doing so much work in him. That was pretty impressive to see that. In Mark 12, we get another picture of the vine and the vine dresser, and it's a parable of, of the tenants that Jesus speaks about. And he says, a man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press, and he built a tower and rented it out to vine growers. There's that word, Georgos. And he went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce from the harvest from the vine growers. So this owner had, had gone on a journey, uh, maybe it was a vacation perhaps, I mean, who, who knows what it was. Um, but when the harvest comes, he wanted to collect uh, what was his, and that was something that was common in that day. These landowners, that would be a way that they would make their money, make their income. And in this parable, to sum it up, he sends a, a slave to go and collect that. And many of you guys might know the story that uh, they, they sent him away with nothing. And he sent another slave and they mocked him, and they, they beat him. And he sent another slave, and they killed him, and so on and so forth with many, many more slaves. And finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll respect him, right? But they realize that he's the heir, and they say that, that they're going to kill him. They're going to seize him and kill him. And in Mark 12:9 it says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. He will give the vineyard to others. And these growers were, were symbolic of the, the priests and the religious leaders of that time. Uh, they, they beat the prophets, they, they killed prophets, they, they murdered them. And ultimately, when God sent his son to us, that they did the same thing as well. They murdered him. And because of the uh, disobedience of, of the Jews, it's prophesied that the salvation would now come through Jesus and it would be available for anyone to receive. But a striking difference that I see between the, the owner of this vineyard and our God, who is the owner and the vine dresser, is that our God never goes away. This, this owner of the land left the vineyard, um, and because of that, there were other people that came in to care for the vines, and we can see what happened with that. But that's not our God. He is the vine dresser. He is the one that is hands-on with both his son and with us. So John 15, 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. So we see here in, in many other places in Scripture that the vine is only good for one thing, producing fruit. What is the fruit? Uh, those are things that are good works that come from us abiding in Jesus, that can only come from us abiding in Jesus. Uh, marks of our moral character and it's really an evidence of Christ living in us and that abiding relationship that we have, that Christ flows through us, and that's the way that we're able to produce fruit. Isaiah 5, 7, um, which, uh, which we read, actually tells a little bit about the type of fruit that God's looking for. It says, Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, the cry of distress. 
So we can see that it really is those, those moral character things, the, the evidence of Christ abiding in us. And of course, we all know Galatians 5, through 23, the fruits of the Spirit, the, the marks, again, of Christ abiding in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So again, a vineyard only has one purpose, and that is to bear fruit. Um, it's not a, a plant that's used for ornament. Um, in fact, its wood is not even good for anything. Uh, there's reference to that in Ezekiel 15, um, that, that the, the wood is not even good for anything. So if a vine is not producing fruit, it's worthless. There's no purpose. And that same application goes for us in our lives. Here in Ezekiel 15, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how is the wood of a vine different from that of a branch of any tree in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it to make anything useful? Do they make pegs on it? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? So what happens when there's a vine, excuse me, when there's a branch that doesn't produce fruit? We're told that that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And it's sometimes translated, depending on which version you have, as he cuts off every branch. Sounds like kind of a scary thing, uh, potentially. And there's a big debate. Again, I wish we had more time that we could get into that. There's a big debate on what that means. Um, But in in referring to us believers as the branches on on the vine, um, if we're not vitally connected, if we don't abide in Jesus, We obviously can't do anything, but we are of no use, and God takes us and removes us from that. And we can actually see that that actually happened with Judas, as we're looking at this this section of Scripture, right right after the the upper room discourse. They had just finished the Passover meal. Back in chapter 13 uh, is when Jesus uh, basically reveals that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And essentially, Judas is cut off as a branch. He was cut off. He was removed um, as a disciple. Ultimately, um, he took his own life because of that. So he was, he was really removed. Um, but he was certainly not connected in Jesus. And it's interesting to think that as Jesus was speaking these words, right, it's right after they got up from that table from the Passover meal and they were maybe taking that walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. That was the exact time that Judas would have been with the religious leaders. The exact time he was about to go to them and say, hey, come with me. I'm going to go take you to him. I'm going to show you where he's at. As we get to the subject of pruning and, and what that looks like, um, it's a word that's commonly translated as, as pruned, but it can also be purge or purgeth, for those of you that have King James Version, or cleanse or clean. I mentioned it a few times, uh, the, the Greek words, but I always like going to that because I feel like it gives us a great picture. Um, it's such a rich language that gives uh, much more meaning, I think, than any of the English words that we have that can describe it. But The Greek word is katheiro, and that can mean to cleanse or to purify, or also to prune. Now, interestingly enough, 
that word katheiro is only translated as pruned one time in the New Testament, and that's right here in John 15, 2. Um, and that's a combination of two other Greek words. Most likely, again, there's some debate on this with scholars, but most likely this is a combination of two Greek words, uh, katharos, which is really the, the root of clean, clear, or pure, but also airo. Airo means literally to take up or to lift up, or it can also mean to carry or remove. And some scholars believe that this actually refers to what is happening with, with the branches, that they're being lifted up or removed in place of pruning. Um, in modern times, and even sometimes today in Israel, uh, vineyards were grown on the, on the ground. They would, they would terrace the land and they would have rocks and, and the vines would grow closer to the ground, not on elaborate trellis-like systems that we have now. Um, and so, so the branches would hang on the ground, especially when they're heavy with fruit. And the, the picture is that they, would, that they would lift up these grapes off the ground, these branches, and that they would lift them up and they would clean them off, that they would wash them, that they would purify them to make them clean so that they wouldn't be susceptible to disease and pests, but that they would actually be able to bear more fruit. So remembering that God is the vine dresser, uh, it's important to know that he knows exactly what he is doing with us. We couldn't ask for someone that's more perfectly suited to care for us. The pruning process is probably one of the most important steps in the vine growing process. So they say um, there's, uh, there's some vineyards and, and there's, there's some, uh, some training that goes on with some of these people that are, that are the vine dressers, that are the ones that are doing the pruning. And they go through years of training in order to be able to have this job. What seems so simple, right? Just a couple little snips. But if they do the snips in the wrong way, in the wrong place, at the wrong time, they could essentially kill the whole harvest of, of the vine. And that year they'd be left with nothing. So with God as the person, as our vine dresser, we're in the best hands. There's, there's nobody better suited for that. Now, if we look back at verse two, um, we can see that there's a progression of no fruit and then fruit and then more fruit. And even skipping ahead a little to verses five and eight, we see much fruit. And that's God's ultimate desire for us, that we bear much fruit. That's the ultimate goal in all of this. Um, and a question that I think we have to ask ourselves, I ask myself, especially just reading this, preparing for tonight, is that my desire? Is that my goal, that I would bear fruit for the Lord? Is that my desire above anything else? And beyond that, am I willing, are we willing to abide in him, to let him have his way, to let him prune us however he wishes, whenever he wishes? We all know that, uh, that that's not an easy process. Uh, I think it's really, it's really easy to say that we want to bear fruit. Who wants to bear more fruit in this room, right? Everybody. Who wants to be pruned? <laughs> Three hands. Great. Pastor Michael, not even a hand. I don't know. You're already done. No, no, no pruning. I love, what, uh, <laughs> I love what Warren Wearsby says about this. He says, the greatest judgment God could bring a believer would be to let him alone and to let him have his own way. But because God loves us, he prunes us and encourages us to bear more fruit for his glory. If the branches could speak, they would confess that the pruning process hurts. 
but they would also rejoice that they would be able to produce more and better fruit. I'm sure we can all attest to the pruning process, right? It hurts. Um, I know I've been a victim of that many times, um, and truthfully, my prayer is that I would be the victim of that many more times, because ultimately that means that I'm, I'm more like Christ in all that I do. Um, but we all know that process isn't fun, um, and it's something that's done repeatedly and over and over again. John 15, 3 says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, the word of God cleanses us. We know that. It washes us. But in looking back at that word for either prune and clean, we can see that the word of God does that to us. Uh, Katharos, the root, that's what's translated as, as pruned. That cleaning comes by the word of God. And we all know that we've been born again and we've been washed by the word of God. And at that point, we're connected to the vine. When we profess faith in Jesus, at that moment, we get salvation. At that moment, we are connected to him. So you'd think we're done, right? It's kind of a one-time thing, but it's not the case. See, Jesus is obviously much different than us, um, but beyond just the one-time cleaning process that we get, there's still an ongoing process. We live down here on this earth, on this world, uh, corrupted with sin and filth and dirt and so much. Um, we need that word to come along and cleanse us. Sometimes we're so covered in the dirt, like those grapes, we need to be picked up off the ground. We need to be maybe held a little bit, washed off, rinsed off. And that's what the word of God does to us. Another way that we're cleaned um, is this thing right here. How many of you guys have been, uh, have been cleaned through this? whether it's through reading on your own, or maybe it's someone that shares something with you, a close friend, a trusted friend that says, hey, do you realize that, um, that this is what the word said? It, it doesn't look like you're, you're doing what you should, or it looks like you might be going down a, a wrong path, a slippery slope, and I, I wanna warn you because of that. We all know that God uses people like that in our lives, but ultimately it's his word. It's not the words of those people that, that come and share, but God's word alone has the power to clean us. Um, there's obviously an allusion to the Bible as being a sword, and I can think of that as, as God's instrument for pruning us sometimes. I think we so often think of the little shears or snippers, whatever they're called. I don't know. I have some. Um, <laughs> I grow roses, not, not vines, so if there was something on roses, I'd be a little better, but but we have this picture, right, of, of uh, vine dressers coming and, and snipping, but I believe God uses something far more powerful. You know, his, his word is a sword. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So again, you know, vines are, are pruned not just once, regularly. And I'd ask, when was the last time that you've been pruned? We've asked a question of do we want to be pruned, but when was the last time you were pruned? I hope it was recent. I'll tell you right now, I'm being pruned today, this week, as I go through things with family and people in my life, 
and it's not easy, but I rejoice because I know God's with me. I know I can't do it on my own. I hope you guys feel the same way about that. And I think it's interesting that, you know, we all know that it's not our works that, that make us holy, of course. Um, that's, that's pretty clear in Scripture, but it seems that we really can't be clean in the eyes of God unless we are continually cleaned, and we have to be open to that. We can't just say, say that prayer one time and then one, run away from God and say that we never want to be pruned, we never want to be cleaned, we don't want anything to do with them. That's just not the case. John 15, 4, it says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. The Greek word for abide there is meno, and it's a verb meaning to stay in place, to abide, to continue, to dwell. I hope you guys were here last Sunday um, as Pastor Michael shared again on, on I am, and he shared the seven I am statements of Jesus. Um, and I love that he pointed out that each statement requires a response from us if we want to inherit the promise. Jesus doesn't just say, I am, and it's all yours. He says, I am, take a step, and then it's all yours. He says, I am the gate, whoever enters through me. He says, I am the vine, abide in me. There is a step that we have to take. And it's interesting that Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. And it's, it's a two-way thing. It's not just us saying we want to abide. We can say, okay, Lord, I, I want to abide in you. I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. I'm going to start making that devotion time more of a priority. I'm going to start making prayer more of a priority every day. That's a great start, but what about the other way? Jesus wants to abide in us. Isn't that interesting? He says he is abiding in us at the same time, but we have to let that happen. And the only way we can let that happen is if we are connected to him, if we are abiding through him. He can't force himself on us. He'll never do that. But if we want it, he will abide in us. Now, we know that the, that the branch cannot bear fruit on its own. That fruit is a result of the life that throws through the vine, excuse me, that flows through the vine and through the branches. And it just can't happen if the branch is not connected to the vine. Imagine if you, if you took a, a branch and just stuck it onto a, to a vine, just kind of rested it up next to it. Not necessarily attached, but just rested it. It would appear that it's growing on the vine. Things would, things would look great for a while, but ultimately that branch is not going to bear fruit, and the Lord's going to see that. He'll know that. He'll take that branch away, but it is evident, and we know that we can't expect anything to come from that vine, right? If it isn't connected, if it isn't attached, if there's no life source, there's nothing that's going to come from that. We're told in verse 10, skipping ahead just a little bit, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So obeying God's commandments is a clear way that we can abide in the Lord. Spending time with the Lord is another. Mention that a little bit. Um, I'm curious to know how many of you guys are committed every day to spending time with the Lord in a devotion? And I'm not going to ask necessarily for sure. Oh, there's the hands before I said, don't raise your hands. Um, not necessarily a judgment or condemnation on you guys. But I just want to know, um, is that something that you guys are committed to? Is that something that you say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to abide in you, 
but I'm going to take that step. I'm going to obey your commands. I'm going to follow what it is that you want of me. Down to John 15, 5, as we get close to wrapping up here. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Those seem like pretty powerful words. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We all know that this isn't entirely true in a literal sense, though, right? Um, there's plenty of people that do all sorts of things. They aren't connected to God. They don't abide in him. They, they don't even know him. And they might appear to do things that seem good, seem good on the outside. Uh, maybe you have friends and coworkers, I'm sure relatives, that aren't believers, that maybe know of Jesus, but certainly don't know him. They don't abide in him. And you could say, yeah, that's, that's a good person. They, you know, they do great works. They give to charity and they, they volunteer. And, you know, I, I never heard a, a curse word out of their mouth, right? But none of that really matters. Um, so Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of value. Nothing good can really come on our own. I think we can all admit that. We can probably look back to our lives before we knew the Lord, and we could see the so-called fruit that came from that, right? But now that we've made that commitment, now that we're connected to him, we do see the fruit that comes from abiding in him. Uh, Pastor and author Ray Stedman says this about abiding in the vine. He says, you see, you can do many things without depending on Christ. He does not mean that without him, you just remain in a mobile blob. You can operate your business without Christ. You can make it run well. You can raise your family without Christ. You can even pastor a church without Christ. I read this and was kind of taken aback at first, but I realized that there's probably a lot of churches that that's going on. Um, I think we hear all the time stories, things we see on the news, we hear from friends and family, um, and it's a sad thing but it happens. But if you try, you will find that there will be no fruit, no Christ-likeness, no manifestation of that beautiful character which arrests the attention of others. Instead, there will be a shabby sham, a phony imitation of the real thing which will drive people away from Christ and produce nothing but a dull, mechanical religiosity which is piousness without God. Those are harsh words, very harsh words, but I think words that we all need to hear. I think it's important to remind ourselves continuously that we need to be abiding in the Lord, that apart from him, we can do nothing. We can't sort of abide in him. We can't partly abide in him. It has to be an all or nothing thing. There's, there's really only two options. We abide in him and we bear fruit, or we're, we're cut away, we're cut off. There's two choices. If we don't abide, we know the outcome. Um, we know that we're cut off. We know that it goes on to say in later verses that the branches are cut off, they're removed, and they wither up, and they die. But if we do abide, and that's God's desire, that he will prune us, but ultimately he will fulfill his plan to bear fruit in us. Isn't it great to know that God has plans?
plans for us. He already knows those things. He knows what the fruit's going to look like. As he starts pruning you wherever you're at right now, he knows what the end result's going to be. And again, we have to have that vine dresser. We have to have that divine vine dresser that knows exactly what to do, exactly where to make the cuts to get us where we need to go. We can't do that on our own. So I think that, you know, this, this scripture, while it sometimes serves as kind of a sobering reminder, um, I really think that there's, there's more of a promise, and I think that's the focus that we need to see here, the fact that we can bear much fruit and that it is God's will and God's desire. It's to his glory that we bear much fruit. I'd like us to uh, end with an exercise. I know we don't normally do this very often. <laughs> But I once heard it said that whoever has the microphone is in charge. <laughs> um, I'd like us to all just close our eyes for a second. And I'd like you to imagine yourself as a vine. Picture a vineyard, picture, picture vines growing around and, and, and branches. I think I said imagine yourself as a vine. I meant a branch. So strike that from the record. Imagine yourself as a branch. What do you look like right now? Is your branch full of robust growth? Is there a, a full harvest of grapes on it that's ready to be picked? Is the branch maybe a little barren? Does it need a little more care? Is it maybe freshly pruned? Is it ready to start springing forth in new life after that was, after that pruning process happened? Maybe a startling question is, is your branch connected to the vine right now? It's never too late for that. As we read, it's, it's to the Father's glory that we bear much fruit. That's what God wants for you. Do you want that for you? If for whatever reason you're, you're not connected to the vine at the moment, again, it's not too late. God's always ready to, to graft you into the vine, to give you life. He wants to add more branches. <laughs> Looking ahead, are there anything, any things in your life that you notice God is trying to prune? Are there any areas that he's been speaking to you and showing you? I pray that that would just settle in for you. And Lord, I thank you for this evening and for this time that we get to come together. Lord, I thank you that you have given us your word, which cleanses us and purifies us, makes us whole, makes us holy. I also thank you that you prune us. I thank you that you love us so much that you do that. 
Lord, it's difficult at times, but if we look ahead, if we look ahead to the fruit that's going to come and know that, that that's going to bring you glory, Lord, I pray that we would just be excited for that pruning process. I pray we would look forward to that. That we wouldn't be focused on just what's going on right now, but that we would look ahead to that. Lord, for those in this room that aren't connected to the vine at this moment, I pray that they would be. I pray that they would want to be. And that they would, that they would make that commitment to once again abide in you, to be connected to you. We know it's not an easy process, Lord, but you help us, and we're thankful for that. There might be some of you in this room that are here for the first time, you've never abided in Jesus. This might all sound a little weird and different, and wonder why at church we're talking about grapevines, Lord, but you painted a beautiful picture for us. Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, I pray that they would. If you're sitting here and you don't know if you're connected or if you want to be connected, would you take that time? Would you just say a simple prayer? Commit yourself 